This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. A few weeks ago, I was at the Boston Athenaeum. I needed to check out a book that I wanted to use as a resource for our recent episode on the Anglo-Cherokee War. And because we have not talked as much about Native American history lately, I also spent some time just browsing the shelves around that book to see if anything else caught my eye. Uh, and one did. It was called Women of the Dawn by Bunny McBride, and it's about four Native American women from Northeastern North America. Uh, and that specific book did not did not work out as a source for Usher just because it reads like fiction. And uh, I don't know about you, Holly, when a when a historical text reads like fiction, it's very hard for me to pick out the fact parts <laughs> from yeah. uh, from like the more color parts. So um, I did, however, learn about another book by the same author, which is Molly Spotted Elk, a Penobscot in Paris. Molly Spotted Elk was the stage name of Mary Alice Nelson. And Mary Alice Nelson itself, itself is an anglicized form of her name, which was Molly Dellis. We are going to follow uh, Bunny McBride's lead uh, because she wrote her book um, with the consent and involvement of her family. So I think she knows best. Uh, we're going to call her Molly for this episode. Molly was born in Old Town on Indian Island, Maine. And she turned to dance as a way for her family to try to make ends meet. But because audiences and uh, dance companies and other venues in the United States were really pushing her toward stereotypical depictions of Native Americans, she eventually took that dancing to France. When you uh, mentioned this episode and that aspect of it to me, I was reminded of our episode on Maria Tallchief, where she talked about as a child being put on these stage shows where they were doing these very stereotypy, false history, Native American dance type things. And it it rang very similar to me in that regard. Yeah, there are some similarities, uh, definitely, with Maria Talchief. There are also some similarities to Josephine Baker. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, she's got some parallels with some other stuff, but still her own unique story. And today, the Penobscot people are a federally recognized tribe headquartered on Indian Island in the Penobscot River in Maine. They're part of the Wabanaki Confederacy. Wabanaki means people of the dawn because their collective territory is on the eastern edge of the North American East Coast. Historically, the Penobscot people were a highly mobile society. They used birch bark canoes to move along the river and other waterways in warm weather and sleds and snowshoes when everything was frozen over because it gets quite cold in Maine. Uh, hunting animals like moose and deer and muskrat was a major source of food and materials for clothing. Fishing was a staple as well as were growing and gathering. By the time Molly was born on November 17th of 1903, Europeans' arrival in North America had changed the Penobscot way of life radically. Only about 400 people remained on a reservation on Indian Island. Introduced diseases and violent conflicts had reduced the nation's population, while their territory had shrunk through land cessations to first European and then American governments. 
hunting had ceased to be workable as the major engine of the nation's economy. And instead, many of the Penobscot relied, in one way or another, on Maine's tourist industry or in entertainment. The reliance on the tourist industry was definitely true of Molly's mother, Philomene, who practiced traditional medicine and was also a basket maker. Basket making is culturally very important to the Penobscot people. Baskets are made of ash splints and sweet grass, and the ash tree that they're made from is actually part of the Penobscot creation story. Philomene was highly renowned at making these baskets, both for her skill in making beautiful baskets uh, and because she was so prolific at making them that she was able to put a significant amount of income toward her family's expenses by selling them during the tourist season. And the men in Molly's family were notable as well. Molly's father, Horace, was the first Penobscot to attend Dartmouth College, where he went for a year. And he would later become a representative of the Penobscot people in the Maine legislature, and eventually the governor of the Penobscot nation. Both her paternal grandfathers were also tribal leaders. Molly's career as a dancer started when she was very young. Tourists coming into the area would ask native children to dance. And if they did, a lot of times they were rewarded with a nickel. Molly really loved to dance. And at the age of nine, she wanted to get some more formal training. She wanted to take ballet lessons in Bangor, Maine. She started cleaning houses at the age of nine to pay her own way to do this. She also spent a lot of her time looking after her younger siblings because she was the oldest of eight children. At the age of 13, Molly finished junior high school at Old Town Junior High. And rather than going directly on to high school, though, she detoured to Massachusetts for three years where she worked as a governess to help her family make ends meet. And from there, she learned that the vaudeville circuit was looking for Native American dancers. So she joined a small vaudeville company, and she danced with them until 1920. When we say a small vaudeville company, these are often tiny, sometimes kind of fly-by-night operations. Performers often had to provide all their own costumes and makeup, and they performed in little hole-in-the-wall venues, some of which barely had a stage or a curtain. But Molly really, really loved to dance, and she was very good at it. And she was able to scrimp and save her pay from these performances to help the rest of her family. For the next few years, she alternated between performing and trying to go back to school. She really desperately wanted an education. And what she didn't send back to her family, she socked away into a school fund. And almost in cycles, she took breaks from school to go to Boston to work and then returned to Indian Island to enroll in school again. In the summer of 1923, she got a job as a so-called Indian counselor at a summer camp for affluent girls. Summer camps were starting to become a popular activity for youth, especially for families who had a little more money. Uh, and a lot of camps at this point were starting to lean on a hodgepodge of Native American cultural tropes for their themes and camp rituals, something that has continued on uh, into today in a lot of places. The Boy Scouts, for example, were incorporated by Congress in 1910, and by 1915, they were explicitly including Native American themes in the honor society known as the Order of the Arrow. Molly's job at this camp was to lend an air of Native American authenticity and to lead the girls in Native-themed activities, such as canoeing and dancing. She was fired from this job, which was mortifying for her, when some pieces of jewelry that had gone missing were found in her trunk. 
And they may have been put there intentionally to frame her. Yeah, a lot of people that were um, interviewed for this book uh, talked about how they didn't think that she had stolen anything. They thought that somebody had done it on purpose to get her in trouble. Because even though... Uh, she was popular among a lot of the girls. She was also facing a lot of racism on the job there. In September of that year, after the summer, she started at the age of 20 high school for the last time. And by this point, obviously, she was a lot older than most of her peers in the class. And she was really torn between trying to educate herself and trying to earn money for her family. In the fall, she started missing classes to pursue other work and eventually stopped going entirely. But she didn't stop trying to pursue education, though. She went to live with the family of Frank Speck, who was an anthropologist working at the University of Pennsylvania. And she had met with him when she was younger, and he had been doing research on Indian Island. He made arrangements for her to attend Swarthmore Preparatory School and audit classes at the university. And Molly contributed to a study he was working on called Penobscot Man, the Life of a Forest Tribe in Maine. It's not completely clear whether Molly ever ultimately graduated from the university. There are some newsletters that list her as an alumna, but her personal papers are more ambivalent about it. Ironically, however, both Molly and a sister who attended the university were housed in the on-campus International House. When Molly eventually struck out on her own, it was to make a more serious pursuit as a performer. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But first, we are going to pause for a break where we talk about one of our awesome sponsors. When Molly left her studies at the University of Pennsylvania, again, not quite sure whether she graduated or just stopped, Uh, It was to join an Old West show, Joseph, Zachary, and George Miller's 101 Ranch Show, which was named after their father's ranch in Oklahoma. This show toured from April to October, and then it performed in an arena that was built at the ranch for the rest of the year. One of Molly's sisters had joined this troupe previously, kind of brought Molly on board. With the 101 Ranch Show, Molly did some horseback and elephant riding, as well as a lot of dancing. She and her sister were also in a film that the Miller brothers made called On With the Show. At one point, she won a dance competition at a powwow, and it's possible that her Spotted Elk stage name was actually given to her at this point by one of the Plains tribes that she was performing with while in Oklahoma. She definitely started using the stage name Molly Spotted Elk after she got back from Oklahoma. In 1926, Molly moved to New York, hoping to find fame as a dancer, saying that if she did, her mother would not have to sell baskets anymore. And she also still continued to pursue her own education, extensively reading, studying, and writing during her off hours, which she really continued to do for the rest of her life. She also kept a diary, which was another thing she would do through most of her life. And she relentlessly critiqued her own dance abilities in it. So no matter how much critics raved about her, she just never felt like she deserved to call her own work excellent. In addition to trying to find work as a dancer, Molly also made some money as an artist's model and as a footwear model. She had these very delicate size five feet, and consequently, they were pretty sought after to model footwear. She also gave dance lessons and continued sending as much of her money as she could back home to her family. 
I kind of love the irony that a dancer had such lovely feet that people wanted to photograph them. I know, because very often that's not the case when you're dancing all the time. Yeah, I studied dance in college and my feet are hideous. (laughs) (laughs) As were all of the dancers that I danced with. So go Molly. Uh, eventually, Molly joined the Foster Girls Chorus Line, which had been founded by Alan K. Foster in 1925. And with them, she traveled to San Antonio, Texas, for an eight-month engagement at the Aztec Theater, where the company performed as sort of like an opening act for films that were screened there. Molly also got cameo roles and solos as Princess Spotted Elk, and she gradually started doing private performances as well. After the Foster Girls went back to New York, Molly got work with another Penobscot entertainer, Lucy Nicolar, whose stage name was Princess Watawaso. Her troupe was all Native Americans, and they performed in the Keith Albee Orpheum vaudeville circuit. We haven't really talked about it, but uh, entertainment, we briefly said at the top of the show, was one of the one of the few... Uh, career opportunities really open to Native people at this time. And so um, Lucy had kind of arranged this all-Native troupe to that end. Lucy was actually also from Indian Island, and her family had similarly made their living selling baskets in, Kinnabunk- in Kinnabunkport, Maine. So Lucy and Molly had a lot in common from that perspective. Soon, Molly was combining the vaudeville work that she was doing with solo performances in which she would perform both traditional Penobscot and other Native American dances with more contemporary styles like the Charleston and the Black Bottom. In 1928, Molly got what she hoped would be her big break. It was a major role in The Silent Enemy, which was a docudrama that came out in 1930. This was a silent film with an all-Native cast about the Ojibwe people in northern Canada. The film, set before the arrival of European colonists, documented one tribe's struggle against hunger in the face of a brutal winter. This film occupies a bit of an odd place in film history. Producer William Douglas Burden wanted to combat stereotypes of Native Americans with his film. He was inspired by previous docudramas, and he originally planned to hire an all-Ojibwe cast and to tell a story that was both sympathetic and accurate. In the end, three of his uh, five lead actors, including Molly, wound up coming from other tribes. And one of those three was a multiracial man who was sort of hiding the complexities of his racial and ethnic background uh, and instead presenting himself as someone who had been raised strictly as a Native person in a Native community. Minor parts and extras came from a mix of Ojibwe actors as well as other Native American and First Nations peoples. Although the actors themselves collaborated on the script through rewrites and revisions, the end's story that was told was still filtered through a white lens with some tropes that were inaccurate and frankly offensive. For example, there was an evil medicine man. And there's some treatment of animals that would simply not fly in the film world today. So in a lot of ways, this film was way ahead of many others of the day in terms of opportunities for representation of Native Americans in film. But if you watch it today, and you can, it's available at archive.org, there is a lot that is still stereotypical or insensitive. Yeah, even when it came to uh, things that had been refined to be more accurate to Native American traditions, a lot of the... Native Americans who were involved in that process were from different tribes. And as we've uh, talked about on the show before, Native American is not like one monolithic culture. There are lots of huge nuances among things. So 
in some cases there were there were opinions that were absolutely true for one tribe but not actually true for the tribe that was being shown in the film. In addition to being in this sort of in-between place in terms of representation of Native Americans in film, something that, you know, good representations of Native people were, that was hugely important to Molly and her work. This film was also in an in-between place in terms of the transition from silent films to talkies. This was one of the last silent films that Paramount ever produced. And by the time it was ready to be released, the world had mostly moved on to talkies. Nobody really wanted to watch a silent film anymore. So in an effort to salvage this movie, Paramount recorded a talking preface that uh, started before the main body of the film, as well as a synchronized score with narration. So people would hear the narrator talking rather than reading titles on the screen. The Silent Enemy, which had involved a year of grueling filming in northern Maine, much of it during winter, was released to almost unanimous critical praise. But as is often the case uh, with films that get a lot of critical praise, it was not a financial success. Molly was able to use her pay from it to buy her family a new house on Indian Island, but it really did not open the door to real fame the way she had hoped. This is one of the first of many things where I just feel like Molly could not catch a break. Like, like the, the film was really good. The big thing that worked against it was that the world had just moved on to talkies by the time the film came out. Otherwise, it probably would have done much better at the box office. So once the film came out, Molly went back to working on clubs and stages, including getting a contract with the Provincetown Players. She was approached for a role in Cecil B. DeMille's remake of The Squaw Man, but that wound up falling through. She kept persevering at finding solo roles and performance opportunities and just trying ceaselessly to portray Native American dances authentically, at least as much as Broadway directors and audiences would allow. As had been the case in so many other times in her life, Molly took on multiple roles and bookings to help her family back home as much as she could. She also turned to direct advocacy, writing to state agencies and newspapers to petition for more fair treatment of the Penobscot people by the state-appointed Indian agent, which was, at the time, the person who was responsible for dispersing funds to the population. In 1931, talent agent Thomas O'Brien invited Molly to Paris, and this marked a huge shift in her life. We will talk about it after another brief break for a word from a sponsor. Molly's opportunity in Paris was as part of a Native American jazz band known as the United States Indian Band, which was to travel to Europe as part of the International Colonial Exposition. Molly was enormously excited to bring her dances to a new audience. But unbeknownst to the band, they were there in part to show cultural progress among Native Americans. So this was in the era in which these expositions essentially contained human zoos. The presence of the jazz band was sort of one step up from that. And in addition to being part of the jazz band, Molly also became part of the International Ballet Corps. Yeah, we've talked about these expos uh, in some previous shows where there would be Like, this is a village from an African nation with the villagers living there, and people would kind of come to gawk at it. Yeah. Uh, So the jazz band was not that, but it was also like they hand-selected the band to show, uh, hey, Native Americans can go to college now. And like that (laughs) that has its own issues. Like, 
it's not being put into a human zoo, but in a way, it's got some similarities to that. At the end of the expo, the rest of the band went home, and Molly decided to stay in Paris. This was a risk she was taking, basically hoping she would be able to find work. European audiences approached her dancing in a very different way from how audiences had approached it in the States. In the United States, Molly was basically a colonial subject, and she was expected to play out a stereotype of a Native American woman. European audiences still saw her as strange and exotic, but seemed a lot more willing to learn about her and her tradition and to want to see authentic culture rather than expecting her to perform a racist trope for their amusement. She moved out of clubs and into cabarets, concerts, and recitals for these performances, becoming known as Princess Spotted Elk. She became pretty highly acclaimed, not exactly famous, but she was finding steady work. And all the while, she was still trying to learn. She was going to lectures at the Sorbonne, and she was working with Parisian anthropologists on their studies. Uh, this effort to make money and survive while also educating herself was just a theme through her whole life. Early on in her stay in Paris, Molly met Jean Archambault, who interviewed her for Paris Soir shortly after her arrival. And he fell in love with her and began writing her really beautiful love letters. And he proposed two months after they met. It's going to be one of the many times where I say, if you are interested in this story, uh, read the book uh, Molly Spotted Elka Penobscot in Paris, because some of these love letters are excerpted there, and they're lovely. Molly, however, was reluctant, although she did eventually take him up on an offer to rent a room in his parents' home. His parents were initially really welcoming of her, but they became a little less approving as it became clear that their son was pretty serious about her. Uh, during this time, Molly worked on a novel. She kept up with her diaries and her letters, and she really threw herself into trying to make a real career as a performer. And it really seemed like she was making headway in this regard until the Great Depression struck, along with political turmoil in France and the rest of Europe, and everything started to crumble. Molly's film opportunities all fell through. Jean, who she called Johnny, lost his job at Paris Soir, probably because his politics did not align with the view that the paper needed to promote to sell enough copies to stay in business. And then he lost his subsequent job at Le Petit Journal and started struggling to freelance. By 1933, three years into her relationship with Johnny, Molly was out of money. She was facing chronic health problems due to having had tuberculosis. She became homesick. Then she got anthrax, for which she was successfully treated. Then she got pregnant. Johnny and Molly wanted to get married as soon as they realized that she was pregnant. But French law meant that she needed to present a birth certificate, which would be followed by a number of delays in trying to get a marriage license. Molly finally decided that it would be best and safest if she went back to the United States, with the plan that Johnny would join her later. Yeah, it seemed more likely that they would be able to get married there than that they would be able to jump through all the hoops that she, as a Native American from the United States, would have to jump through to get married to him in France. After writing to her sister, uh, Molly went back to the United States by boat in a journey that took a month, only to find after getting to California, where her sister had been living, that her sister had actually moved to New York while Molly was in transit. Then, on May 31st of 1934, Molly's daughter, who she named Jean, was born two months early. 
Her sister wound up borrowing some money to come back to Los Angeles to help out. And in the fall of 1934, Molly and the baby went back to Indian Island. Where the baby promptly contracted whooping cough and influenza. So as Tracy mentioned earlier, Molly just could not catch a break. Yeah. Fortunately, baby Jean recovered. Um, she had a combination of uh, traditional healing methods from her grandmother, Molly's mother, um, and from uh, a doctor. So it was a blend of, of treatments, and she did successfully recover, which is good because whooping cough and influenza are both very serious, especially in a baby. Yeah. The following January, uh, Molly got a role in the opera Minnehaha, which was by Peter Joseph Engels. And she took this uh, role, even though it meant that she would have to leave her baby with her mother. With her daughter and her mother's care, Molly went back to trying to earn money as a dancer and a performer. Although she did get small roles in several films, once again, her film career didn't really take off. And uh, she had several minor things to her credit, but not any leading roles and this time, instead of trying to fund an education for herself, as had been the case so often before, she was trying to sock away her extra money to either find her way back to France or to get Johnny to the United States. That separation that they had been living in was really difficult for both of them. Molly had expected, and perhaps even okayed, uh, that Johnny was going to have casual relationships with other women while she was gone. But he wound up having an affair with a woman that he said had been sent to spy on him. And the emotional weight of this relationship, in Molly's view, really crossed a line. This is also the, there's also the part that it was dangerous. (laughs) Johnny was involved, Johnny was a socialist, uh, and so there was some reason to suspect that this person really had been sent to spy on him. Um, but definitely the, it seemed a more emotional affair than Molly was comfortable with. Uh, and after a series of tense letters, some of which crossed in the mail or got lost in the mail entirely, Johnny was on the verge of applying for a visa to come to the United States. He asked Molly to help him secure the necessary documentation that he either had money or a job waiting for him when he got there. But then he got septicemia. He had a friend write Molly a letter a few weeks into this multi-month illness because septicemia also is very dangerous uh, to tell her what was going on. But those letters didn't arrive. And in the meantime, over her mother's fierce objections, because Molly's mother had become very attached to Jean and had been raising her for a while and Molly was going to take Jean with her, Molly made arrangements to go back to France with her daughter in 1938. This is where... uh I knew there was some sadness in this story before I started researching it. This fact that she goes back to France in 1938 being some foreshadowing. I was just say it's sadder than I thought it was going to be. Back in France, Molly's life was less about public performance. She might have done some dancing, but it would have been in private halls or recitals. She and Johnny tried to make ends meet through writing, including a French edition of Penobscot Legends. Eventually, they had to move in with Johnny's parents. Molly gave birth to a second child in the spring of 1939, but the baby died at about two weeks old and had never left the hospital. Molly's book of Penobscot Legends was published later that summer, but just as her promotional tour was scheduled to begin, Hitler invaded Poland. 
Shortly after that, Molly and Johnny finally got married, this obviously looming war and Nazi invasion dispelling any of Molly's lingering reservations about whether a relationship or a marriage uh, between her and, and Johnny was going to work out. Johnny became a scoutmaster, assisted with the Red Cross, helped refugees, and was vocally anti-Nazi. Molly sought aid from Anne Morgan, who was J.P. Morgan's daughter, to try to get the, the couple out of France. And Anne sent them a check to get to Paris with the hope that they could meet someone there who would help get them out of the country and into the United States. However, because they had no jobs waiting for them in the United States and because security to get into the United States had become a lot tighter during the war and because France's Socialist Party, which uh, Johnny was part of, had at one point considered uniting with Germany's Socialist Party, which became the Nazi Party, they just could not get a visa for Johnny to go to the United States. Even though he had personally been vehemently and adamantly against connecting to Germany's National Socialist Party, it was still too big of a black mark against him. There were just too many complicating factors. Molly was offered a place on a refugee ship that was bound for the United States, but she refused to leave without her husband. Johnny, marked ineligible for military service because of a heart problem, made arrangements to flee by boat along with the scouts that he was working with. Molly and Jean were supposed to go too, but at the last minute learned that they couldn't because of their sex. Molly insisted that Johnny go anyway, because at this point, leaving was critical to both his health and the scouts in his charge. Yeah, she had been really, really determined that if they were leaving, they were leaving together. But at this point, she was like, you've got to go or you are going to die. Once Johnny made his escape by river, Molly decided to try to reach safety via Portugal. This was a 700-mile trip. With help from Anne Morgan, she did secure a third-class fare for herself and her daughter aboard the SS Manhattan, and she made her way to the port by hitchhiking, by an ambulance, on uh, in a cart, on foot, and eventually by train. A lot of this part that was done by on foot and by hitchhiking was over the Pyrenees Mountains, uh, where they basically slept by the side of the road. Back in the United States, Molly and Jean went back to Old Town. They moved in with her parents. Uh, her father at this point was the Penobscot governor. They anxiously awaited word that Johnny and the scouts had made it out of Nazi-occupied territory, eventually learning that they had and were in a refugee camp in Toulouse. While writing letters back and forth to Johnny and trying to secure a visa for him, Molly got a job as a dancer and a wardrobe mistress for a touring company from the Metropolitan Opera Company out of New York. She danced, but she also did a lot of cleaning the costumes and keeping them in in good repair. At this point, she was 37. Johnny considered coming to the U.S. illegally, both to escape the Nazis and to be with Molly, but he didn't. After being hospitalized for about 12 days, he died in the hospital Saint-Gaudens on October 23rd of 1941. Molly's friends and her family later reported that her flight from Nazi-occupied France and Johnny's death irrevocably changed her. She spent the next few years going back and forth between Indian Island and New York to perform, She also went to California to once again try to find work in film. And while she was there, she had a psychological collapse in March of 1948. She wound up being hospitalized. Her mother eventually brought her home, and she was later admitted to Bangor State Mental Hospital, where she stayed for a year. She recovered somewhat, uh, finally returning to Indian Island, where she spent the rest of her life. 
She published a Penobscot dictionary and crafted traditional dolls, two of which are actually in the Smithsonian collection. She died on February 21st, 1977, at the age of 73, and that was after a fall, uh, and it was two weeks after her mother's death at age 90. Her daughter, Jean, died on July 8th of 2011. Let's take a sad turn at the end. I I knew that there was some sadness at the end from like my my cursory research at the beginning to decide if this seemed like a good fit for our show. Uh, I was not quite prepared for exactly how uh, how it it sort of takes a turn at the Great Depression and and how much of her life is just she doesn't seem like she can win. <laughs> it's, she uh, she spent her whole life trying so hard to find an audience. Uh, for traditional dancing and to educate herself and to make enough money to survive. And like all of these things were competing for her time and attention um, because of the fact that she uh, was, was uh, native American. And uh, I don't know. I just, I, I wasn't quite prepared for the downer. <laughs> the last, especially the last act of this episode is there is, however, so, so, so much more detail in Molly Spotted Elka Penobscot in Paris by Buddy McBride. Uh, that book prints lots of excerpts of her letters, letters to her, letters from Johnny to Molly, her diaries. It's, uh, a, and a lot of that, um, these are all things that I felt really comfortable reading about in Bunny McBride's book because she did work with the family and had their direct involvement and their permission to tell this story. Uh, but a lot of them are really intimate. And I was like, I don't feel like I can read this super intimate letter on our right. podcast. <laughs> um, but if if you want to learn more about Molly and her life, uh, that book is really, really good. You should pick it up. Do you have some listener mail, my dear? I do. And this actually throws back to an episode from quite a while ago, but it's a, it's a letter that we just got. Um, just as you and I were leaving for a whirlwind 10 days of travel to Salt Lake City and then New York City. It is from Tessa and it is about our episode on the Gallipoli campaign. Uh, and she says, hi, Holly and Tracy. My name is Tessa. And to answer the ever important question, I listen to you in between dispatching ambulances or uh, answering emergency ambulance calls in Canberra in the Australian Capital Territory. I live in a city with one of the best war museums, the Australian War Memorial. They have a great website, and if you find yourself in Canberra, you should really visit. Whilst listening to the Gallipoli campaign episode from 2015, on my way to work tonight, I discovered your podcast at the beginning of the year, and I'm hoping to catch up to the most recent ones soonish. I was thinking about Simpson and his donkey, thinking what a fantastic topic for the podcast he would be, when lo and behold, you mentioned him. When I was in kindergarten uh, and year one at primary school, my school and another nearby primary school would come together on a hill named Simpson's Hill for Anzac Day and November 11th, uh, Remembrance Day. The hill was, of course, named for him, and he continues to be a very important part of the culture of these two schools. I take the dog for a walk up there as often as I can as it is quite close to my house. There's a flagpole and a small memorial there surrounded by browning natural grasses some rosemary plants and poppies. I was always fascinated with the story of Simpson and his donkey. As a, as an adult, it still brings a tear to my eye that he was so filled with bravery. As someone who works for the ambulance service now, although in a communication side of things, I see him as a shining example of how you can be filled with determination and care for your mates. 
In Canberra, we take pride in our memorial services for Anzac Day. It is a public holiday, and many folk will get up at 4 a.m. or earlier to get a good spot on the Anzac Parade, which is lined with memorials for nurses, the Vietnam War, uh, and more. For the memorial, which bring, which begins at sunrise. A good Canberra joke is that uh, the first freezing morning of the year is always going to be Anzac Day morning. My day, my dad used to get up, my little brother, sister, and I, and take us down and explain to us while we were shivering in our jackets and blankets in the dark why it was important that we remember them. It was a good lesson. Nowadays, during the memorials and celebrations for Anzac Day, there is a special attention drawn to the nurses and women at home and abroad who were affected by the war, by service, work, or family. It's good that there is acknowledgement of their sacrifice. Sorry, this email is a tad long and may not make much sense. It's my second night shift before days off, and I'm a little tired. Uh, And then she concludes... Uh, with some episode suggestions and ends by saying, thank you for the podcast, which brightens my world immensely. Thanks, Tess. I just wanted to read that. I know that episode was quite a long time ago. And for folks who don't remember, uh, the man she's talking about was a, an ambulance driver who was evacuating soldiers, including on the back of a donkey. But I don't know. I love to hear people who have personal remembrances of how the things that we talk about on our show, when you and I are, Americans living in the United States and, and don't have personal experience with um, the how things have evolved uh, to be like public holidays in other parts of the world. I love to hear from people who say, yeah, this is exactly this is how we uh, observe this where I live in this case in Canberra. Yeah. So very thank you so much, Tess. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history as well as Instagram at history. If you want to learn more about what we talked about today or any other subject, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find an archive of every episode that has ever existed and show notes for the episodes Holly and I have put together, lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 